So I wanted to <clears throat> take some time this morning for just to make room for any reflections or questions that you would like to raise um, that feel um, you know useful or valuable in where you are in your practice just now. But to kick off with, I think I'd like to start with two questions that were actually left for me uh, because I see them as being very connected, related. And the first question was just a person's reflection on finding um, the loving-kindness practice uh, difficult, and could I give some suggestions? And the second question was about aversion and uh, the refusal to embrace the painful, kind of locking us into very fixed or static ways of seeing I, I want to speak to this question of meta first. I've spent a, a lot of time over the last few years really um, really endeavoring to understand as fully as I can what this practice of practice of meta is really all about and how it is in the early teachings that the the Buddha speaks of meta as being a complete path of awakening in itself, a path that leads to liberation, a path that holds within it all of the insights, all of the understandings that we could possibly need to move out of a place of creating and recreating and experiencing and re-experiencing distress and very contracted ways of seeing ourselves and seeing the world that are often really rooted in aversion. And, you know, aversion, it, it actually sounds like kind of almost like a, like a not-too-bad word, does it? It doesn't sound really that serious, you know, aversion. It's, you know, well, you know, a little aversion here and there, you know, it's not life-threatening. But actually, you know, in terms of Buddhist psychology, it's, it's one of the big three. You know, in Buddhist psychology, we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion as being the three fires that really have outcomes that are so devastating in terms of alienation and conflict and struggle and rejection and refuse, refusal and, and uh, conflict. So the Buddha suggested, you know, it's, it's not much help for us to heap ill will upon ill will, but that perhaps it really is the cultivation of this attitude of metta that really has a very powerful effect in undoing the world of ill will and undoing the world of alienation and estrangement. Now, we do remember, you know, in the early teachings that the the Buddha was not particularly prescriptive about practice. He was not particularly obsessed with techniques or formulas. What he was primarily concerned with was the transformation of the heart, the transformation of the mind, the stepping into freedom, the stepping into awakening, the stepping into liberation. And of course, we, we, you, we hear those words of awakening and freedom and liberation and 
we often put a capital letter on the beginning of those words, you know, and then we we make them into these really rather remote uh, places that can feel quite unattainable or unachievable, particularly when we're locked into familiar habit patterns such as aversion. You know, liberation feels very far away. Um, Awakening feels very far away. But the Buddha always spoke about path and fruition, you know, and that these two are not separate, you know. Always speaks about the path of cultivation and that with cultivation, that actually leads to fruition. So he says we cultivate many things. We cultivate calm, we cultivate stillness, moment to moment, liberating the mind from agitation, from obsession, from rumination. You know, we, we cultivate spaciousness moment to moment, liberating the mind from contractedness, from that imprisonment of, of being closed down. That we, we cultivate compassion moment to moment, liberating the mind from that uh, avoidance of distress and pain, and that with cultivation there comes to be a naturalization of these qualities that we call fruition. So there is both liberation with a small L and with a capital L. Because the Buddha speaks about the unshakable liberation of the heart. But that's not where we start. We start with very shaky moments of liberation. But as we cultivate those qualities, those shaky moments become less shaky. So he says we also cultivate metta. Now, one of the reasons people have, I think, difficulty with metta is, first of all, we, the translation of it, and secondly of it all, sometimes we struggle with the technique of it because we see the technique of it as being quite sort of prescriptive almost. Prescriptive. So to, to look at the translation of it, first of all, meta, well, I mean, some, this is not news to some of you, but loving kindness is not an accurate translation of this word. And I think that very translation for many people is very disenfranchising and actually seems kind of irrational. Because, you know, if you're in the midst of a terrible illness or a terrible pain or, uh, you know, a really difficult relationship to, to hear it suggested to you that you might love this, this really sounds like a step too much, doesn't it? Um, and, the, you know, so that the actual translation, it, it translates much more closely as to be a friend to. Meta has its roots in the word matri, of friendship, or to be a friend to. And if we turn that into a verb, it is to befriend. So we're befriending you know, we see how much this goes hand in hand with mindfulness, that mindfulness is to turn our attention towards that which we often flee from or abandon, and then metta is to stand near to that which we have turned our attention towards, to explore it with a, a kind of an affectionate curiosity, a befriending, 
a befriending, ah, a befriending of this this pain or this illness or this difficulty. This sounds much more feasible than to love it. Things might stay difficult, but we're no longer afraid of it. And fear and aversion are so closely interwoven that aversion is often really rooted in a, a fear of injury, you know? And if we fear injury, we push that away, or we flee from it, or we abandon it. So I think it's, it's so important inwardly to sort of, you know, conceptualize metta really in a way that makes it possible. I don't have to like what's going on. I don't have to think what's going on is terrific, you know? But I, I can learn not to abandon it. I can learn not to flee from it. I can learn not to live in a fearful way. Not to live in a fearful way. Then we come to the practice of metta. And again, it, it's, it's just quite useful to know that I, I think as Western students in practice, we, you know, you know, for years after the Buddha's death, people were trying to figure out ways to put his teaching into practice. So here comes the world of techniques, you know? Nothing wrong with techniques, you know? Very, very skillful means, often. But they're not kind of sacred, written in stone type things, you know? So many of them were evolved, you know, like about a thousand years after the Buddha's death, many of the techniques. Um, and we've kind of inherited them as sort of holy grails. And one of the things we've inherited is a particular way of cultivating metta, I'd like to get out of the idea of practicing metta. I'd like to move more into a place of cultivating attitudinal commitments, cultivating behavioral gestures of the mind, cultivating ways of being present that allow us to take those steps out of fear and out of aversion into a freer, way of being present but nevertheless we still look for ways to actually put this into practice so one of the ways that we've inherited very much comes from the Vasudhi Maga um, you know some more than thousand years after the Buddha's death where you know that we have the domains of people you know ourselves and friends and benefactors and neutral people and difficult people and we use a series of phrases now, some people find this really quite lovely to do, and that's wonderful. And some people find it, you know, at times quite mechanical and quite prescriptive. And I think you have to feel a lot of freedom to explore this, to explore what actually is effective for you, what actually works for you. To remember, this can be a very skillful means of beginning to open up domains of relationship not only outwardly, but inwardly. You know, caring for oneself, feeling a sense of affection and befriending for oneself, for the body as it is, for the mind as it is, for the heart as it is, feeling a sense of befriending, you know, that world of judgments and impatience and dismissiveness and, you know, jealousy and dullness and agitation... What is it to befriend this world, to befriend this body, to stand near to it? 
with all the frailties and the pains and the discomforts and the ideas of how it should be. What is it to befriend this body? This is often the hardest part of this pathway of befriending for many. We know culturally, you know, how, how so many are just burdened with that self-judgmental, critical, comparing voice, you know, that so, that's so rooted in a self-construct. Sometimes a self-construct that we've inherited from others or that's been told to us by others. And sometimes a self-construct that has been, you know, both personally and collectively built up in our world of just never being quite good enough, you know. Making mistakes, you know, falling short, failing. Um, all those, those kind of comparing, comparisons that arise. And this is a very burdensome voice that many just live with on a daily level, you know, believing it, believing it, rather than actually seeing how the self-narrative, the self-story of deficiency and lack is something that is, is actually fabricated and constructed moment to moment on the basis of aversion. On the basis of aversion. Of this is not acceptable. I don't like this. This is not who I should be. And building up that self-construct and that fabrication that becomes so toxic inwardly. So exploring this development of befriending within ourselves I think goes into something that I, I spoke about last time I offered a talk here. It's, about, it's not about imagining some feeling or some emotion or something different even than what is being felt right now. It's a question of a relational way of being, an attitudinal commitment. So maybe the mind is going crazy with, with you know, the self-judgment story. You know, maybe the body is really hurting or not the body I want. And here we make the, the practice of befriending so very, very relational. May I be at peace in the midst of this. May I live with ease in the midst of this. May I live with, with kindness or well-being in the midst of this. So we're not imagining some, some remote and separated place that we're supposed to get to. It's about this attitudinal way of relating to what is present and stepping out of the imprisonment of aversion and fear into actually the freedom of allowing, of embracing, and most importantly of not defining ourselves by the contents of our mind or the contents of our experience. If we can make that one huge step of non-identification in our practice in our lives, it's a huge step towards freedom. Because we do see how very, very prone we are to define ourselves by the contents of our mind. Oh, difficult thoughts or jealous thoughts, and oh, I'm such a failure, and I'm such a useful person, useless person, you know. Um, 
fantasy thoughts, daydream thoughts. Oh, no, you know, I'm simply a person who can't meditate, you know. That tells me this, you know. Difficult body, you know. Oh, I'm, I am the sufferer. We, we see so frequently that, that very quick and almost automatic step into self-definition based upon the contents of our mind or experience. And, you know, if I, if I think about sort of, you know, if we use the word progress in practice, a lot of it is about stepping out of that tendency of identification. Oh, thoughts of, thoughts of aversion are happening, or thoughts of jealousy are happening, or daydream is happening. But this is not actually who I am. This is just what is happening and how much we, we can find the capacity to move from that immersion in contents into the seeing. And sometimes that in itself is the meta. That in itself is the befriending. Sometimes helped along by remembering those of int- intentions of may I be easeful in the midst of this. Eh? May I live with, with well-being or kindness in the midst of this. It becomes a way of stepping out of the identification and into a dialogue or a relationship. When, when we come on retreat, you know, we, we can even get preoccupied with the contents of experience in a slightly more refined and sophisticated way, you know, of how concentrated I am or how unconcentrated I am. You know, how mindful I am or how unmindful I am. You know, and we can start to get concerned with, with slightly more sophisticated contents, but exactly the same patterns operating. You know, if I was a good meditator, I'd be much more concentrated, you know. Or if I was a really good meditator, I'd always be mindful. And look at all those gaps, you know, and look at all those, those failures and look at all those lapses. This practice is, and you know, and that isn't that where we begin to move into the, the pathways of aversion, you know, judging or getting irritated or getting frustrated or getting impatient with ourselves. This is moving into the pathways of aversion. And I think what we begin to see as we practice that contents of experience arise and pass, there's much that we learn from them. They're certainly not to be dismissed, but they are not self-definitions. And actually what the most important shift is the attitudinal transformations from impatience to allowing and patience, from frustration to calm and returning to calm, from judgment into befriending. And these attitudinal transformations, these attitudinal shifts are really what we're concerned with here really what we're concerned with here. And in making those shifts through metta, because this is all a way of befriending, we actually start to see some of those patterns just begin to fall away a little bit, begin to to be less powerful, to begin to be less self-builders and less world-builders. So we move through these, these different domains of meta practice, which I say is a, it can be useful, but try to think of meta, meta cultivations or the resetting of attitudinal commitments or behavioral gestures of the mind. You know, we move into realms such as 
you know, befriending the benefactor, recollecting and befriending the benefactor. This is about generosity, isn't it? It's about appreciation. Certainly particular people in our lives can remind us of those qualities of generosity and appreciation. But it is about the cultivation of those qualities. And it's not about just the external benefactors in our lives. It's about really beginning to sense the landscape of generosity, ways that we have been benefactors to others, ways that we're actually benefactors to ourselves. That inner voice, that inner intention that encourages, that is, um, that is generous, that is not withholding, that is supportive, that is caring. Exploring the domains of generosity and the power that it has to, to begin to uproot that aversive pattern of withholding that again is so rooted in that sense of, of not enough or not good enough. We move into the domains of a good friend and again these can be external people in our lives and we begin to appreciate the, the power of friendship the intimacy, the joy, the confidence, the trust. And we begin to appreciate how much those qualities are so woven into this pathway of liberating. We appreciate those qualities in the way that we've been a good friend to others and really sensing the landscape of those qualities of, of trust and confidence and intimacy and tenderness and, and care and the ways that actually... We are a good friend in the moments that we actually are a good friend to ourselves and the moments when we're simply not. And those moments of not being a good friend are not moments, again, that invite rejection or blame or should, but it's sensing the possibility of, ah, in this moment, what does it mean to be present with kindness in the midst of this you know, critical voice, in the midst of this judging voice, does it mean to be a good friend inwardly in this moment? We move into, in traditional practices, into the domain of the neutral person, the people we feel more indifferent towards, the people who are kind of invisible to us through the absence of attention. And actually we, we see how this operates in our own practice and in our relationship to ourselves and in our relationship to the present moment, how how in the absence of mindfulness there's no possibility of metta, is there? In the absence of seeing someone or anything wholeheartedly, there is no possibility of metta. And how much this neutral domain is entirely related to an absence of connection or an absence of attentiveness. And we see how much we develop this in our practice here, this capacity to be present. This opens the door to care. It opens the door to appreciate. There is nothing and no one who is invisible when we are wholeheartedly present. And sometimes the metta is simply this cultivation and this offering of this wholehearted attentiveness. You know, one of my my own investigations over the last year is to, to have a commitment to not having any neutral people in my life. 
you know, and if you actually really explore that intention, you begin to sense how many pe- neutral people we do have in our lives, you know, how many people we don't see, or how many moments then we don't see, you know, how many moment people we don't see because we don't have this kind of self-referential relationship with them of what they mean to us or what they offer to us or whether they threaten us or whether they affirm us. And when we don't have any of that personal history, how often people just become, many people become somewhat invisible to us. Just, you know, they might be functions in our life, the person who checks out our groceries or, you know, works behind the counter in the bank. They may be functions. But do we actually see them? And we actually we see that that sense of when when wholehearted mindfulness is present, so is the possibility of actually seeing and the possibility of befriending. And when mindfulness is absent, how often we can move through our lives and move through our world simply in a bubble of our own thoughts or our own reveries or our own self-referential constructed world. So it's kind of been, a, for me, it's been this really interesting exploration of this movement from something being, or someone being somewhat invisible or hardly worthy of attention to someone being very visible as a, you know, a dynamic human being who, you know, longs to be happy, who longs to be accepted and respected and, and seen and visible. And, you know, we really see this in our own practice. It's not that we are a neutral person to ourselves, we're anything but, but how often we become invisible to ourselves through that withdrawal of mindfulness and that movement into this this kind of world of thought and fantasy and constructions and how in that world we actually don't sense ourselves to be this alive, fluid, dynamic process of a person, a being, again, who, who longs for happiness, who longs for respect, who longs for care, qualities that can be offered inwardly. In more traditional meta practices, we move into the world of the difficult people, and many people report there's a long queue here. You know, and you know, and sometimes we're the difficult person. You know, it, it sometimes we're just a difficult person. But as I mentioned when I was speaking earlier to someone, we actually only have one difficulty, which is aversion. Aversion makes a difficult person. You know, people might be difficult, but they become an inaccessible person through aversion. You know, doesn't mean that everybody is great and terrific and cooperative and fantastic, and neither are we often. But aversion makes the difficult inaccessible. It makes it unmarkable. Aversion has the effect of creating distance and creating the other. Now, creating the other through aversion creates a very constructed self in another person that is shaped and formed by aversion, you are, you know, you're such an irritant, you know, you're such, a, you're so unmindful, you know, you're, 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 you're so uh, agitated, and the I am. And you notice with aversion how these two voices of self and other arise together and solidify together and get married together in these toxic relationships 
of aversion and fear and ill will. Sometimes the other is inwardly, you know. Sometimes the other that's created through aversion is, you know, the thoughts we can't accept, the the emotions we find, um, you know, unacceptable, the the body pains. And again, notice when aversion aversion is the trigger for a story to be built, isn't it? The bigger the aversion, the bigger the story. The bigger the aversion, the more solid the sense of self, the more solid the sense of other, constantly being rejected or seen to be something unapproachable and to be pushed away. So before we get into the long project of the many difficult people in our lives, I think we all it's good to recognize how that that long queue really is carrying this very singular thread that actually freezes us into certain patterns of reactivity, certain self-views, certain views of others. And you know, in that process of you know, the whole pathway of liberation that the Buddha speaks about, how much he speaks about, you know, the liberation from views, the liberation from the views of self the liberation from the views of other and how views are held in place very often by aversion. So metta in this sense is very much, you know, it's recognizing aversion. It's having some insight into the outcomes of aversion, where aversion goes. It's having some insights into the way in which aversion is a self-builder, and then how it's a world builder, that the world of self and the world as we see it, our view of the world, are arising together. So Metta is very much recognized in this whole kind of very ingrained, very embedded pattern of aversion, not as something to be blamed or to be judged, but to recognizing that it is one of those key factors, along with greed and along with delusion, that keeps the world of distress being built and rebuilt and practiced and repracticed. It's good to notice that we actually practice aversion. We don't just feel aversion. We actually practice aversion. We practice aversion through feeding the thoughts of aversion, through the behavioral acts of avoidance and pushing away. We actually practice aversion. So the way in which metta and insight and mindfulness is, are really working so much hand in hand is actually realizing that we really do have choices about what is fed and what is practiced moment to moment. It's knowing we could go down that pathway, but here, through our own explorations and through our own investigations, we actually really have that choice to befriend that which we would more habitually push away. We have the capacity to befriend those places of difficulty and struggle. And as we do this, as we do this, on all other levels, much is happening. By cultivating that attitude of befriending and not feeding the the irritations of frustrations, the impatience of judgment, those patterns are being starved. And that sense of self Selfing that is so built on those patterns is beginning to be able to drop away. And this is where there's really that shift into a very 
a much clearer, freer way of seeing that is actually so rooted in befriending. So to get back to the original question, um, I find the practice of loving-kindness quite difficult. First of all, it's, it's really helpful to change our formulation of what meta practice is. It's really important to see this as a, as a cultivation in every moment. And you think about where do we practice, where do we cultivate metta? Every single moment where there is aversion, where there is impatience, where there is judgment, where there is comparing, where there is fear or anxiety, where there is jealousy. jealousy. These are the moments we actually recognize, ah, the many, many faces of ill will and fear. And here is the possibility of pausing, of coming back to the body, of knowing these patterns, and of having that willingness, that behavioral gesture of the mind, to befriend and to explore and to investigate what is actually going on here. And that is the meta. It's It's not a feeling, it's not a state. It's that that willingness and that intentionality, which is a a huge act of of generosity to ourselves and generosity to others. So that was a very long answer to a a question. (laughs) We have a a little bit of time left. Is there anything else anybody has got on their minds within reason? that you'd like to raise for some reflection. Yes, please. Um, I've got a bit stuck with intention. So I kind of know the flavour of it, but not the tone. Is intention something you set at the beginning of the day or before each practice? Is it big? Is it small? What does it actually look like? Well, if you so the question is around intention and and you know what does it look like? How often do we set it? And you know, in this teaching, we speak a lot about the centrality of intention because this is like the, it's like putting the gas in the car. Intention is what moves the thoughts, it's what moves the speech, it's what moves the behaviors. So intention is that fuel that actually sets the mind-body process into motion. Okay. It's really good to be clear on that. So there can be very unskillful intentions, obviously. You know? When the body moves into acts or thoughts or words of, of you know, ill will or, or of greed, there can be very, very unskillful intentions, quite habitual, quite in, unconscious. And what's encouraged in this teaching is to move into the world of conscious intentionality that is rooted in that which is wholesome and that which is caring and that which is liberating. So, you know, when the, when the, now clearly there, there's many, many different intentions in a single day. But in this teaching, it's suggested to really root those, that big field of intentions into kind of three core intentionalities. And one of them is around kindness, and one of them around compassion, and the other is around non-clinging. Now they can have each of those can have big families. You know, the intention of kindness can have a very big family. The intention of compassion can have a very big family, and the intention of non-clinging can have a very big family of manifestation. 
Now we look about how we translate those into our practice moment to moment. You know, it's not that we just stick with those three singular intentions, but we look at how intention actually gets translated into how our sitting is guided or how our walking is guided or what happens off the cushion or how we go into the work period in a single day. We might set the intention, you know, okay, my intention in this sitting, in this walking is to be very collected, very one-pointed. You know, my intention in this sitting and this walking is really might be to explore the landscape of befriending and the landscape of aversion. You know, the intention in this city, this walking might be this commitment to non-clinging, to actually coming out of, you know, the reveries and the and the and the constructions. So it's quite helpful, you know, and all of those are actually manifestations of kindness, compassion, and non-clinging. I think sometimes it's quite useful to work with one practice with one particular field of intentionality over a period of time to really befriend it. It might be the intention to cultivate spaciousness where there's a sense of closing, closing down or contractedness. And then we look at how would that actually operate in a walking period. It might actually be noticing the space around the trees as well as the trees the silence around the sounds, as well as the sounds. In the sitting practice, it might be looking at the places where, you know, we're starting to get a tunnel vision and to look at coexistence and what is well. So sometimes it's useful to actually, you know, cultivate and to stay with one of these domains of intentionality over a period of time. Personally, I I don't actually have a whole lot of confidence in the approach to meditative development where we sort of sit down with our fingers crossed and hope for the best. (laughs) I think... (laughs) I actually don't have a lot of confidence in that in terms of actually really feeling that we're on a pathway of development and a pathway of cultivation. I I think that the, the... the place of intentionality in that pathway of development and cultivation is actually quite central. And it doesn't mean being rigid. It doesn't mean that we're fixated upon one particular intention. But it does mean that there's a sense of direction every time we sit and every time we walk. It does mean that we're actually on a pathway where we actually see that something is being cultivated. I think sometimes sitting down with our fingers crossed and hoping for the best is the best is not going to come. We're going to have a lot of accidents in that. So, so to actually really begin to explore it, you know, sometimes it's, it's just really a simple setting in the beginning of a city. I mean, the city's really dedicated to actually the cultivation of spaciousness. That doesn't mean that we're not then attending to the body or attending to the body breathing, but we're actually kind of setting the sort of attitudinal space behind that, which I think can be really quite useful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.